to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to break down this passage for you guys and uh, work, work with it, work with you all to, uh, on this and, and just see what God has for us. Uh, even like as I'm worshiping this morning, I'm, I feel like the sermon is still kind of preaching to me as, as I'm singing and some of the words in the song, the songs that Brad has chosen. And so um, God just works in, in all those types of ways. Um, let's pray first and then we'll read the passage. I'll give you all a few summary points. Um, some things we'll get into on this, but uh, let's let's start out with some prayer. Um, so, Father, we, um, Lord, we thank you for this time together. And as I speak, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help, that you would um, magnify your word, that uh, you would become greater and that we would become lesser. Uh, Lord, just um, you are holy and we are not. Um, all the, any any um, goodness that we have, Lord, is from you. And we thank you um, for all the good that you've given to us, all the blessings. Lord, you are just and perfect in all your ways. Um, God, you, you are good to even um, speak to us and to love us and to be a father to us, um, the perfect father um, with no shadow or variation of the slightest evil. God, you are pure, um, the, the, the most pure white um, spotless lamb, Jesus, you were. Um, we thank you for just your intention towards us and your exhaustive word, so many words you've spoken to us. And as we look at a few of them today, God, I just pray um, just for more uh, growth for our church, uh, for health, uh, for individuals, each one of us here, that we'd become healthier um, spiritually and um, grow spiritually as individuals and as a corporate body. Um, we ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so read the, read the passage. So verse 42, and you know, it's just picking up right where we left off uh, last week with Sankey, where um, Pentecost had happened and, and um, the 3,000 were saved. And so the, the verse right before this, if you see, um, verse 40, 41 says, uh, so they, those who received his word were baptized, and they were, and there were added to that about three thousand souls that day. So three thousand souls, and then here comes verse forty-two, where we start today. So it says forty-two, and they devoted themselves. This is the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. You know, really pay attention to this first verse. There's four things: the teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs, wonders, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day 
those who are being saved. So a few things we'll kind of look at um, and focus in on with this passage. You could probably have an entire sermon for every single sentence in this passage, but um, some things that I'm going to bring out and kind of my outline, first of all, would be um, sort of this is like a springtime in the early church. Um, This is the first church in its early days. And the second would be how the church grows. And specifically that verse 42, as you saw, it's, it's the teaching, focusing on the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, communion, and prayer. And so um, another thing we'll look at is something Sankey talks about a lot with looking at scriptures that are narratives, things that happened in the Bible, um, and trying to figure out, is this something that we should imitate or prescribe is what he calls it, you know, um, is this scripture, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? Is it telling us what happened or what, uh, what we're supposed to do or a little bit of both? So we'll look at that. And then also um, looking at the, the word, it starts out with, with devotion. Devo- they devoted themselves and kind of contrasting that with awe. And so like this devotion, diligence, commitment versus being inspired and having awe in your heart and, and an overwhelming love. And so those kind of uh, dynamics there of those two, two different words that are present here in this early church. But if you look at this uh, passage, um, it, it's a lot like spring, uh, what we're experiencing right now with our season. Um, it's, you know, I, I don't, you know, the guys, the, the time changed last week, right? Which is, we're still kind of all in shock about that. I don't think he loves it, but um, there's one thing that I notice every year that's kind of like the first signal for me um, is that spring is here. It's all of those white trees start blooming. Um, it's, I think it's the dogwoods and the um, Bradford pear. Jamie was uh, able to tell me last week it's specifically the Bradford pears that, that pop up. It's kind of like, oh, wow, I guess spring is here. You know, all of a sudden we've got all these, these blooms. So that's kind of like the first thing we see, and it just kind of comes on us. Um, I, I kind of see that as a little bit like what just happened at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came. And all of a sudden we see 3,000 saved in once, after one sermon, sort of like you know, a sudden sign of a, a quick increase in, in salvations. And then you start seeing the next weeks, you start seeing you know, the, the undergrowth starts turning, the grass is greener, undergrowth, and you've got the red buds come out, and you've got all these different little signs that spring is coming on, and it's a gradual day by day. There's just a little bit more, a little bit more. So if you look at the last verse of our section, um, that, that whole picture of day by day, the Lord added. Um, and what, you know, what happened that caused our winter dead landscape to turn into what we're seeing now? Uh, it was just two things, right? A little more sunshine and heat, um, and then water, right? So pretty simple elements. And, you know, I think about that and how, you know, scientists every year, uh, researchers have to go in and they have to look at, like when the flu hits, every season they've got to create this new flu vaccine and guess, you know, and half the time never works. Um, but with spring, when it comes on, that new season, like they don't have to do anything. We just, we just wait and God does the work, right? Um, and so it's just these simple elements of a little water, um, a little heat, um, increased temperature, and it's, it's growth by the ordinary Growth by the simple, the unexciting, it just starts happening. And um, it's natural. It's just the way God uh, causes the world around us to, to go from bleak and 
dead of winter to vibrant and exciting. Even even the animals start coming out. I know we have this in our backyard. We've we've had two years in a row now where like there's been rabbits that were born in our play playhouse, and so it's cool. these things start coming out, and and the people start coming out too, and we all really get into that. Um, it's growth by the ordinary, the unexciting, and I hope you see the pretty easy connection with that and the church here um, in this passage. Um, and I kind of think of whenever you think of it, like how simple and ordinary these things are that cause such an extraordinary, amazing, radical, if you will, change in our environment. Um, I think a lot about how Jesus in, in several other places uh, throughout the Bible where it talks about the coming of the kingdom and how that coming was going to be a lot different than what they expected. You know, they expected a strong military or other sort of like kingly leadership um, reign of Jesus. And he came in saying a lot more simple things. Even, you know, I think it was John the Baptist that was announced that he would be coming. And when in Luke uh, chapter one, verse 17, an angel tells John the Baptist's parents, he says that your son is going to announce Jesus. And one of the things that's going to happen is this, he kind of says some big things, but one of the things is like really stuck in there. It's really short and simple. It's, he's going to turn the, the hearts of the fathers to the children. So like in the midst of all these grand things that Jesus is going to do when he comes, one thing is going to be like, dads are going to pay more attention to their kids, right? We're going to care a little bit more about what's going on in their life. And that, those small, simple things, you know, he, God is going to do by what Jesus did on the cross by giving up his life we're going to start seeing fathers and their care change. These simple, easy things, kind of boring, but you see what radical change it has around us. Um, so this is sort of springtime in the early church. Um, this newborn church totaling 120 members before the Holy Spirit descended, before Pentecost, now 3,120 uh, 3, um, after the 3,000 were added. And then now the stage is set for this day-by-day slow addition. Um, and verse 42 says they were devoted to four things in particular. What are those four things? Look at them with me. Four things that Luke, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew were important uh, to bring up as crucial for the church to grow. Um, these things are, number one, teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, right? Fellowship, getting together, breaking of bread, and prayer. So breaking of bread there is communion. Later, you'll see in this passage that also talks about having meals together. And, you know, it's part of what they did in the early church was communion with meals. And so there's a lot of that sharing of meals, but also often taking of communion and focusing on Christ together in prayer. They were devoted to these things. In other words, they were committed to them, ready to do them, that were devoted, ready to do it, willing, unwavering, disciplined, diligent, or continuing steadfastly in all, all these four things. And I like the word spontaneous. Are you guys familiar with that word? So in our culture, a lot of times we think of like, oh man, that person's really spontaneous as if they do a lot of things randomly. But actually the scientific word for spontaneous, the definition is more, uh, I looked it up here, this is one definition, was proceeding from or acting by internal pul- uh, impulse energy or natural law, and then here's the key part, without external force. It's something that just kind of happens without you having to put a lot of effort or energy into it. Um, so you get the connection here um, with what I'm, what I'm getting at there is 
like we talked about with the spring, a little water and heat, boom, you know, you've got this whole change. Um, the fundamentals of these four commitments that the early church had, the word, prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread together. These are things that God has wired where he has orchestrated the church to grow in this way. So growth happens in the church this way. You listen and hang on his words, a.k.a. devote yourself to, you know, also known as devote yourself to his teaching, um, and you grow, right? We grow. You show up and be with others in the body, the fellowship. Uh, you grow, we grow. You gear up for communion, and we grow up into Christ, who is the head and unifies us all together. Um, you make up your mind to be all about prayer, speak to, your, speak to God uh, alone and with others. God starts speaking back in the world around you and in his word, starts making things happen. Um, and like I said, really simple, basic stuff, right? But don't we get away from those things a lot? Um, water and heat, growth, right? These four elements, growth. And so also, you know, Keep in mind as we're looking at this, you know, these things are not a lever that you flip and when you want God to do something, right? Um, this is just the way that God has set it up for us to be healthy and to grow together. So think on that for a minute, health and growth. How can we know more about the health of the church and our own spiritual health? Um, look at our passage. Um, there's a few words that kind of float out of the text as you're looking at it there. Uh, gladness and generosity. You see those in verse 46. Those are signs of health, right, in a Christian. You're glad, you're generous. Um, a generous heart that is giving to others is certainly not one that's consumed with materialism, right? Um, you, you know, if you're totally all the time consumed with the thought of what bills to pay, how much money you're getting this time, what things you have to do, all of these materialistic things, it's harder to be generous, um, they had that in the early church. Other words, they were together and they had unity. Also, they had favor. You see that down there towards the end. They had favor with all the people, verse 47. And we know that they were evangelistic, right? Because we know that God saves by the preaching of the gospel and that being believed and, and understood. Two more health words there that we see are worship and awe. So as you go down there, it says they praised God. Uh, verse 47, and then also um, awe, which is in verse 43. Um, and and, and I, don't, I can't think of really much else that causes a person to grow more than to be in awe. And I don't know the word that Sankey uses a lot of times is captivated with God and just in love. And that causes us to really respond and grow and worship him. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little while. But so with this health, God then grows the church daily, right? In, in this passage, he adds people more and more um, according to his ordained method. That's what he did then. That's what he done, done, he's done through the history of the church and will continue to do. Um, and one thing kind of shifting here now, um, that one thing I've appreciated about stuff that Sankey has preached on with, with Acts is using the term of not um, interpreting the scripture as prescriptive. Uh, when it's actually just describing an event. So I want to be um, kind of explain a little bit of that, kind of tease that out with this passage with you guys. Um, and think of, you know, if you're having a hard time understanding that, like think of prescriptive as just like 
a doctor writes a prescription and says, here, do this, right? And so we have to look at some texts in, in the scripture and not say, okay, we're supposed to do this. For example, right here it says, you know, they did many wonders and signs, the apostles did, so therefore we should be doing many wonders and signs. You have to be careful there. Um, and sometimes the passage is, you know, just explaining what happened. And so that's descriptive. But also there's some passage, and I believe this is a good one, that is a mixture of both prescriptive, like you should live this way and, and do this, and also a mixture of descriptive, this is what happened, and not everything applies in this passage. So uh, point number one on this kind of topic is like don't over-prescribe this, this passage. And so what I mean by that is it would be a dangerous thing to bind some things that happen here onto the church, like specifically where it says there that they um, were, verse 44, they had believed and were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. People have used this verse as a basis for the argument for communism or commune living, um, and it doesn't hold up with the rest of the scripture at all. Um, so we can't take this as an isolated passage and, and, and preach that. Um, we can't bind on people in the church. It would be wrong for me to bind on you that you have to sell all of your possessions, even though Jesus did that, you know, with one person, um, because he knew that person's heart was clinging to his possessions and more than, than and he would never let those go. So that was the one thing he told him to do. But for, uh, for me to say up here that you should all sell all your possessions and give to the poor or give to each other and share everything, that's not what this passage is, is teaching. That would be an unfair binding. Um, and so um, that would, and because and then, you know, we'd just be putting the, this guilt on people for not, for not doing those things. But it's clear they didn't do that um, because later in this verse, people still had homes and possessions to share, verse 46. So we know they didn't sell everything. Um, there continued to be people that had many things. But what they did do is that they, they saw people in need in the church. And they're like, I, don't, I, I can get rid of this thing and help this person out, you know? Um, and so very, very generous. Um, also, sometimes we over-prescribe a text by thinking that it's promising something that God never promises to us. Uh, an example in our passage, um, the apostles did signs and wonders, and these were done for what reason? To showcase the message, right? Um, Pentecost happened to dazzle everyone so they would then listen to Peter's amazing sermon and then be cut to the heart and repent and be saved. It wasn't, you know, Pentecost and, and the, the, the dissension of the, the tongues was not for the, the sake of the signs alone. And so it'd be wrong for us to um, put this on, on the church. And many health, wealth, prosperity teachers and preachers do exactly that. These faith healers, they'll take a passage like this and bind it on people and, and use it as justification for their their fake healing. So the point of the Pentecost miracle wasn't only so people would be dazzled by the miracle, but so that the dazzling would get their attention to hear the sermon, the sermon that Peter dropped on them. Um, and then 3,000 were reborn. So you have to be careful not to over-apply certain things like this. Um, we were never promised to be able to do spiritual signs and wonders, were we? There's no specific promise for us to do that. Now, I say all that, to say, um, to then go to this next point, there's a little illustration of a story that happened with me, and I've had similar things like this. In eye care, there's a lot of times where I see something, man, like my heart goes out to this person, 
And I so much want something for them to happen that's impossible, but I still ask God for it. Um, and an example would be uh, one of my friends in Durant. He was my right-hand man in, in the exam room. He would kind of write down everything I said. Anyways, his grandpa came in for an eye exam. He called him Papa. So Papa had developed a blood clot in his eye that I could see when I looked in, and it was closed off this closed off this vessel, and you could see a whole area of the eye, the retina inside the eye that was lacking blood flow. So it's basically a stroke inside the eye. And so um, what I did was, um, you know, worked with him, got the diagnosis. Me and his grandson, you know, got everything ready, treated it as the textbooks tell us to. Um, and then I, one, one thing that is indicated sometimes is you can do an eye massage. You can have them close their eye and just like just mash on their eye and it could possibly loosen that clot up and kick it downstream. And so therefore it wouldn't keep closing off and, and they'd lose oxygen to that part of the eye. So that's what I did. But as I did it, I prayed. I prayed out loud in Jesus' name. And, you know, I'm mashing on his eye and praying and just, God, please do something here because this guy's going to lose permanent vision. And I wanted so bad for this to happen. Um, then I get down, I get done, you know, doing that. And, and he appreciated the prayer. So did his uh, grandson. I looked back in his eye and absolutely nothing happened. It looked exactly the same as it did before. So did I not have enough faith? Was that the reason it didn't heal? Does God not, you know, work in those types of ways? Is that why? There's no specific promises in Scripture that we have power to do such signs and wonders. So that's why I say be careful how you interpret Scripture and how you teach it because you could, you could be, you know, teaching people that your, your faith is just not strong enough or it's, it's sowing doubt and in truth, um, God may have healed him, may not. It's him and his timing and his, and his ways. Um, and so being careful on those types of things to, to read scripture in light of the entire Bible too. Another thing that we can overprescribe um, from certain passages is a promise. Um, the promise here, like in this particular passage that we could take away from this is that, that if we are a faithful church, as they were, and we devote ourselves to the right things, scripture, prayer, fellowship, communion, uh, that God will bring us specific fruit that they got. It's also not promised, right? Specifically, it was not necessarily day by day after we devote ourselves to those things that God is going to bring those things. Um, like all these salvations that they got to witness, um, like we could wrongly start thinking that people will be saved day by day, and then we are not devoted enough if this becomes, um, if this doesn't happen, this becomes really, really self-focusing and looks a lot to our own level of faith and actually instead of looking to Christ, who is the object of our faith, right? Um, he didn't ordain these flips for us to switch in order to make him act the way we think he should. Now, to be sure, I'll say God does promise to save people. And we should expect that God's going to save people through the preaching of the gospel through our church. Like, um, there's a general promise there, but not these specifics. Um, and so we should expect and hope to be a part of that. So however, this doesn't happen on our timelines, right? Um, John 3 verse 8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, where it comes from, and where it is going, you, don't, you do not know. But, and so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. God knows those things. 
um, we are to wait for him. Uh, a quote I have up here by William Carey at the bottom of the, the slide here is, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And so kind of thinking about just praying for these grand, amazing things to happen, like the blood clot clearing from this person's eye or somebody you've loved for years and years that you would pray that they'd be saved. Um, thinking kind of through all that stuff, uh, one thing that William Carey, if you know much about him, um, he was a missionary to India. I think he's considered the father of modern missions. One of those, he's, he was a big name in missions, had a huge impact in India. But a quote from him, I'll read it to you. It says, for more than seven years, he labored, this is actually a quote about him, for more than seven years, he labored faithfully in India without the joy of reporting to friends at home that he had won a single convert. Seven years, zero converts, um, to his knowledge. His trials were many, the opposition great. His wife was an invalid for 14 years. He buried some of his children in India. His printing establishment Together with manuscripts, the fruit of many years of labor was once destroyed by a fire, but patiently he continued preaching, writing, and living the gospel out. Um, and I would say the same thing uh, goes for us and, and what, what we are striving for as a church is that we want, we want to follow in, in a similar method here. Um, Another thing you can kind of look at wrong with this church and overprescribe here is that this is, if you look at it, it's kind of like a utopian church, right? You just read this passage, it's very like, like they had it all, like everything was going right. Um, compared to what we often see in ministry, which is a lot different than this. Uh, we have to be especially careful about um, thinking uh, that there's this utopian church um, especially as we sometimes expect unpromised success in ministry. And what we see when we look around is actually a lot of rotted fruit and storms. And I, I mean this um, kind of thinking about this, this church that we're, we see here is like the prototype, right? Everything's going well. Flip over to chapter five. And do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? It's the same church. And what they did was they saw everyone selling all these things really generous, and they were like, we're going to do that too, but we're going to lie about how much we actually sold. And then you end up seeing God strikes them dead for their dishonesty. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And so this can be pretty discouraging whenever everyone's growing, you're, you're preaching, you're holding God's word, and you have these people that do something like that. Um, that can be pretty discouraging if you preach and teach that God will certainly do blank in ministry He'll certainly do this for us. And instead, you look around and you see all this, this rotted fruit and storms um, adding, adding to the body count. Um, and so being careful to not think this isn't us, because this is us too. We're part of the same church. And so I think uh, this is a good place to bring out one amazing thing about Jesus. Um, remember when he was in the garden? And he's about to be crucified. He knew everything that was going to happen. He didn't know, you know, there's, there's, he was omniscient. And so um, what did he pray in the garden as he's sweating drops of blood and probably more distressed than any of us have ever been close to? Um, he's about to take on physical beating and also the spiritual, the spiritual um, 
devastation of being punished for everything you have done, everything you've thought that was evil, all your sins, all of the world's sins, the entire weight of the world is about to be on him. And what did he, what did he pray? He prayed that, he said, Father, if there's another way, can this cup pass from me? I, not my will, but yours be done. He knew that there was no other way, but in his weakness as a human, fully God, fully man, like Tyler mentioned earlier in his prayer, um, fully God, fully man, he still asked his father, God, I don't want to go through this. Is there another way? Um, and so I bring this up to say, like, back to Papa and the blood clot in his eye and whatever other thing that you have rolling around in your head right now that you think is too, like, crazy to ask God about. These are things that we should pray for stuff like that. You want to see our church grow in depth and, and strength and community and fellowship, but also in number and a place. You know, I know that's something we're all praying that we'd have a, um, a new location where we can uh, be a little more visible so we can kind of be like what it says here at the end. It says that um, uh, they had favor with all the people. And, you know, it's a little bit harder to have favor with all the people when you're not really very visible and around the people. Now we all have our lives where we're, you know, um, kind of these tributaries and, and places where we're at in our lives with other people who are around our spheres. But, but pray for these things. Continue to come to God and say, God, these are things that we desire. They seem to be good things. They seem impossible, but Lord, would you please answer that um, and just and wait on him. Pray for stuff like that. Want, want it boldly to happen and be okay with God's sovereignty, right? There's nothing wrong or evil about you praying for impossible things because they are possible with God. I want to be careful though, as we said all this about not over-prescribing this passage or saying it's like, you know, do these things. You also don't want to under-prescribe and say that this is only descriptive and it doesn't have anything to do with our lives because it definitely does. Um, we need to be careful because we can end up thinking that it, it doesn't apply to us at all. Um, we don't want to under-prescribe to the point that it means nothing for us practically, right? And the passage actually truly is, even though it wasn't written this way, it's written as descriptive, but it truly is an exhortation or like, hey, you, we should live this way to devote ourselves to the same things they were devoted to, right? The, the fellowship, the teaching, the communion, and, and the prayer. And this applies through all of church history. Um, we also should mimic their generosity, unity, gladness, worship intention, and try to stir up more awe and wonder at who God is and what he's done. And on all that, we should expect some sort of blessing from God in his timing for our obedience. It will definitely be spiritual, the blessings that he gives us. We'll, he'll, he will definitely bless us spiritually. Um, and it might even be physical. Um, God has blessed us physically, right? Um, but always in his timing and in his measures, right? And the way he, the way he says, the way he decrees. True dev devotion to what God cares about brings about the general promised blessings of God, which are individual growth. These are general promises, more converts and more amaz amazement in him. We can safely apply that to us in, in our, in, as a church. Um, I want to shift a little bit now towards the word um, you'll see in the passage, verse 42, it says devoted. Um, and then the next verse where it says, ah, verse 43. 
Um, so think of those two words, devoted, and what did they devote themselves? Those four things, right? Those four pillars we've been talking about. And then, and then what happened after that? In 43, awe came upon every soul, right? And so um, Peter is the one that wrote this. Sorry, Luke, Luke wrote this. But when he wrote it, he did write it in that order that they devoted themselves to these things first and then awe. Now, he may, this probably isn't a major point of him in the passage it may have been like they had awe and they were devoting themselves at the same time. May have, you know, so I don't think that's the main thing, but it's written that way, I think for a reason. Um, and, 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 and we'll get to that here in just a minute, but I want you to look at these two words um, and contrast them a little bit, devotion and awe. So when you think of devoted, another word for that might be diligence or committed to or attending to, and maybe even the word disciplined. This is something they're... Discipline, I also think about maybe these two words in the context of like uh, falling in love and getting married. Um, Awe kind of fits pretty nicely with falling in love and devotion fits a little more later with being married and staying married, right? Like now there's there's this, you know, within marriage, if, if you're married, there is this aspect of when you fall in love, like it's overwhelming, it's this desire. And that's kind of what awe speaks to, right? Um, but that does fade, right? To some level, that changes at least. That, that can, over time, begin to look different. And there's a lot more at year 50 of marriage of being devoted to your spouse than there is of the awe that you felt when you were falling in love at 20, right? And so think of those words, um, Awe has a little different feeling to it compared to devotion. It's more like being captivated or inspired or, or wondering, right? And earlier I had mentioned that word spontaneous and how it means that in nature, things may happen on their own without having a lot of external force. So which word, devoted or awe, feels more spontaneous? It would be more like awe, right? Um, when we talk about someone who is devoted, there's usually some level of discipline or diligence or continually pushing towards something. And sometimes it can seem a bit forced with, with devotion and diligence. How, how do you think the early church here is in this passage? Is it more one or the other? Um, seems pretty spontaneous, right? They were devoted, but then they had awe. And so there's a kind of a mix of both of these things. The word, the fellowship, communion and prayer, they're devoted to these things. Then they had awe. Um, and so, and then you look down further in the passage, it says the wonders and signs and all the fruitful ministry expression kind of stemmed from those things, right? So um, I want you to kind of just continue to think about your devotion and your awe to those four things personally, you know, just where, where you're at. Um, and then maybe even think too about money and possessions, um, like how they gave here in this passage um, and it, that, that should come from a cheerful, willing heart, right? Um, not from one that's just feeling obligated or uh, unwilling. We want it to come from a cheerful place. Um, also pastoring. Uh, in 1 Peter 5, 2 says, pastors should lead willingly and not under compulsion. But I would say, do you think that any pastor wakes up every single day or every, comes to preach every single Sunday and every single time is just full of awe, right? 
There's some devotion that keeps them uh, consistent, keeps them to the task. That, that devotion keeps you married, right? Um, and so even, you know, thinking about this, how do you gauge yourself on where you're at in this whole spectrum of, you know, commitment versus awe and, and captivation? Um, how do you know when you're doing something compulsively because I have to versus willingly because I want to? And that's difficult most of the time because we're a mixed bag of pure and impure thoughts and motives, right? We have sort of a mix of all that. It's a sliding scale that can change from day to day and from year to year and even minute to minute. Like all it takes is maybe your car breaks down and suddenly your tithe is a lot more of a devoted, committed thing. I, ha- I need to do this rather than a, I'm excited to give this because I don't know how the month's balance is going to work out because I got to pay three grand on the car, right? Those types of things. Or maybe you're doing your family devotional and you got three, four, however many kids and you're, you've, maybe this is like the one time you're devoted, you're excited, you're um, inspired and you prep something and you sit down as a family and one of them flips out in the first 30 seconds and it's like one of those three minute, five minute flip outs, you know, and, and then by the end of it, your inspiration and excitement has turned to, this is like the last thing I want to do on earth right now. Let's all go to bed, right? So those types of things, we, we shift on this uh, often. Um, the other thing too about this um, is we're just pretty fickle about where we're at on that scale. Um, we're also a pretty terrible judge of where we are on this sliding scale of where our hearts truly are. Even the Bible itself, Jeremiah 17 says, that we, our hearts are deceitful. So our own hearts lie to us often and we may think we're doing everything really well as far as this goes, but in reality, our hearts are far from it, right? Um, And so we do know that God truly sees our hearts even though we often lie to our hearts. Um, And it does take the Holy Spirit looking at the word to speak to our hearts, to tell us where we're at regarding, you know, whatever the topic is um, and your, your devotion and your, your awe and your inspiration. Um, so we should make a great habit of constantly asking the Holy Spirit to show us where our heart is and, and that he would make us excited and keep us devoted, right? Bring us that awe that we had, that they had here after the devotion. I mean, do you want to be like they were here? I do. Um, and let me hit on something I've observed in many church circles. I think, I think there's a lie that circulates around in churches. Um, I think that this is in the context of an unwilling heart, like when, whenever someone has not got a lot of uh, willingness. This lie is that, and this may bounce around in your own heart, and thought sometimes, if you don't feel it, then don't do it because that is legalism, right? Have you heard that concept before? Like if your heart's not in it, if you aren't willing, if you aren't wanting to read your Bible, then don't because otherwise you're forcing it and God is not in that. It's legalistic. It's works-based. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Is this, is this making sense? Um, you've heard this before. Um, you're not a fountain of joy and riding the gospel wave today. So, you, and this is maybe something you think you're not like riding this gospel wave today. And so you shouldn't share with this person because you would be bound in legalism um, and they won't receive it if you're, if you're in that. Your heart's not 
100% sure they're uh, pure, so therefore you shouldn't share. Um, and I, I just want to, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 9.16 and listen to Paul for a second. I think we have that up there. Um, this is Paul, who I think it's safe to say one of the best writers about grace in the New Testament and, and, um, and, and preaching against works, right? Um, preaching against legalism. And he said this, talking about evangelism. He said, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about, for I am under compulsion. Keyword compulsion. He is saying he's obligated, compelled, he should. He's under compulsion. For woe to me, woe to me, if I do not preach the gospel. He's saying it's not going to be good with me if I don't preach the gospel, Right? Verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, so if I do it because I want to, you hear that? The, the want to part. I think the awe is probably there in the want to. If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if it's against my will, so if it's not really something I want to do, what does he say? He say, you shouldn't do it because it's legalism. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He says, I have been entrusted with a commission nonetheless. Still obey, still follow up, still pursue to follow God. So the whole point here that I'm trying to make is that this is not just to be saying that you need to grit your teeth and obey when you don't feel like it. That's not my whole point. Though that is true, the greater thing, and the point I'm saying and getting at is that, is that we recognize our own heart, that our apathy and our lack of awe or inspiration or want to we recognize that, first of all, whatever the situation may be that you're in or will be in. Go to God with that and pursue that exciting, ask him for that exciting, excited, willing heart for him through the means that he has ordained, through the word, through prayer, communion, and fellowship. If you don't go to the fountain, then you can't drink, right? If you just say, I'm not feeling it, therefore put the Bible aside, then it turns into a week, a month, three months. And the whole time, the fountain was there for you to drink. Um, he, was, he was speaking to you. And, 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 and so lack of desire is never a reason to skip out on following God, right? When you notice that your willingness is as dead as in win, dead winter, confess that to God, ask for spring and obey nonetheless. Expectantly and patiently wait for the season to turn where God brings that growth because he will. I mean, he has promised spiritual blessing. In Ephesians 1, um, he says, in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing, um, everything. It's all for us. And so there's not one spiritual blessing that God is going to withhold from you. He's going to bless you. Um, last of all, I wanted to mention again the fruits that, that came from these early Christians. And so 44, you look there, this is back to the original. It says they were together and unified. Uh, 45, they were gener gener generous and not materialistic. 46, they were gathering often. Uh, you see here how they, they gathered in homes and also went to the temple daily. Um, they were getting together a lot. They wanted to be together. They praised God, um, in other words, uh, worship, right? They had favor with all those around them in the community, which means they were somewhat present in the community. Um, you can't really have favor with people you're not around. Um, they grew in number, 
and still managed to have favor. So they were like evangelizing and growing and multiplying. And even though you would think a lot of times you're evangelizing, you're going to bring opposition, but they still managed to have favor with these people they were evangelizing to in the surrounding community. So they were giving out a message that to some people, when they gave that message, it's a huge turnoff and offensive, right? Um, the, the gospel message is offensive to many, but I mean, you're telling people that they're sinners for one thing, right? And that's going to offend anybody that doesn't want to hear that. Um, but then that gospel is that good news that, that, that there's salvation from that. But they're giving this message out and to some, it was a huge turnoff and to others, it was life-giving. They were converted day by day. And, and then there were some in the community that they probably, they weren't turned off a lot and they didn't get converted, but they just were overall kind of appreciated on being around. And I think that speaks a lot to the way they acted and were so generous and loving to each other. Like, man, this is, this is pretty cool that these people um, are living this way. And, and that's what it means to have favor Overall, the surrounding community was glad to have them around. And this speaks to how we should be as a church, right? In word, gospel proclamation, and indeed, gospel living. Um, your deeds complement your words. Um, people get saved by God's power through gospel telling. But if your demeanor is just a turn off, nobody's going to listen. Um, opposition builds. You lose favor. Um, and... So yeah, I think there's just many fruits that they show in this church that, that we can emulate and strive for and pray for in the church. Um, and so I think I'm going to pray just about these things, and then we'll, um, I think Brad's going to come up and do another song. But just think through as we're closing here, this passage, and it's, and it's a really easy one to sit down and study this week. Um, and just, and I think it's a, one of those nice ones. It's, it's fairly cut and dry. Um, and, and easy to follow. So I encourage you to, to read through it and kind of check your heart on where you're at with these different things and um, seeing what kind of prayer points that God brings uh, to your heart as you're, as you're reading it. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you after, after looking at your word, listening to you, um, God, and we just uh, pray that you, would, that you would do a work, uh, continue to work in us, Lord, um, as you did the early church. And we thank you for your promises um, that you will bless us and that you have blessed us, God. And um, Lord, as we, as we sing, uh, we ask again that you would receive our, our praise. And um, as we join the, the chorus of all history that, that exalts you above all, pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.